0: For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville,
1: Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Foodways is a young field. Yes, am With a sadly short memory about deeply important people People who have now gone on to the long, unbroken table in the sky. It's true. Like
2: Ernie Meichler, the bard of working-class Florida foodways.
1: Or Vertime Grovesner, the champion of low country and Afrocentric foodways.
2: Eugene Walter of Mobile, Alabama. You know, Melissa, he's one of those guys. One of those dearly departed folk whose legacy matters, whose life matters. His voice and his words and his aesthetic and his ideas shaped the food culture of this region.
1: He was brilliant, John T. His career spanned nations and vocations. He was
2: in many ways a kind of spiritual founder of the Southern Food Base Alliance.
1: Which is why, in 2018, we commissioned Nashville musician Paul Birch to compose a song cycle to help keep his name and his memory alive.
2: Trovatore, Paul called it.
1: <laughs> it's a brilliant title.
2: And he was a brilliant man.
1: On this episode of Gravy, we beat that Eugene drum again and again.
2: Dance with us.
1: I'm Melissa Hall.
2: And I'm John T. Edge.
1: We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 Gravy.
2: production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South.
1: In this episode of Gravy, Sarah Brooke Curtis celebrates Eugene Walter, a true iconoclast and an honest bohemian.
0: Eugene Walter was Mobile's Renaissance man. He composed sonnets and handled marionettes. He was a costume designer and a cookbook author. He wrote poetry and prose he loved monkeys and cats, he wrote about gumbo and patent leather pie, about the earth and the cosmos, about the magical mobile of his youth. He was the ultimate Deep South Bohemian. But 21 years after his death, very few people know who he was or how he left his mark on Southern literature, culture, and cuisine. The moment I heard an old recording of his voice the second I heard him talking about how the invention of the air conditioner ruined porch life. The second I saw a video of him wearing a suit and tie while strumming an imaginary harp and performing an ode to fat back at a committee meeting at the Alabama State Archives, I knew I had to produce a story about him.
3: I was raised with a sense of uh, books, paintings, uh, wine, food, um, all that stuff and nobody ever made me go to bed or study as long as i didn't make any noise i could stay up all night and draw pictures and make poems and play with tin foil and play with the cats my grandparents had 23 cats now that did a lot toward forming my life because my uncle he informed me once and explained about cats having nine lives and I decided. Well, I want nine lives. He said each cat's life is different, so that's what I've done. Um. Writer, painter, actor, etc., etc., etc.
0: Eugene Walter lived deeply and extraordinarily for his seventy-six years on Earth. Raised in the 1920s in Mobile, Alabama, he adventured in the Aleutian Islands. New York City, Paris, and Rome before returning to Mobile in 1979. I went to Mobile to learn about Eugene's life, to meet the people who loved him, and to get to know the place he came from. The more I researched, the more textured his life became. A vivid portrait emerged. A man who transformed in front of an audience, who relished in daily rituals of his own design and rejected the traditional 9-to-5 routine a man with a rich internal life and a strong appetite for life's pleasures big and small. A man whose life was full of a kind of cinematic serendipity. John Sledge is an architectural historian with the Mobile Historic Development Commission. He was a good friend of Eugene's.
4: I mean, he was a cryptographer to begin with in the, in the military service. He, he made coffins out of wood for the Civilian Conservation Corps in Mississippi before the war. He uh, was a playwright. He was uh, a poet. He was a novelist. He won prizes and all those things. He was an actor. He was in Fellini's films, Eight and a Half. He was a translator. He translated scripts. He was a, a man of letters, a founder of organs like the Paris Review. It's truly Renaissance man. Fits him. Fits him best.
0: Catherine Clark worked with Eugene to write his oral biography, Milking the Moon. A Southerner's Story of Life on This Planet.
5: He might never have had an important or serious job, but actually, therefore, he was able to have an important life. No, he wasn't famous. No, he was never rich, and he never achieved any kind of prominence anywhere, but that wasn't for him where happiness came from, and he just had a very strong sense that he had had an important life, and it was actually because it was not the typical American
4: life. He was so authentic, and valued that in other people, and encouraged people whose families might not have believed in what they were trying to do. If they were a, if you're a sixteen-year-old kid and you wanted to be a painter or a poet, and your dad was browbeating you to go to law school. Eugene was a safe harbor for people like that. And they, they found him for, I don't know how, but he always had this coterie. And I think he really, for me, defines in, in many respects the soul of Mobile, the essence of what Mobile is at its very best.
0: Frank Doherty is a writer who worked with Eugene for five years at Azalea City News and Review, an irreverent paper in Mobile that published weekly from the mid-70s into the early 90s. Eugene wrote a Gossipy News About Town column called EWEW, a food and recipe column called Table Talk, and an herb and gardening column called Concise Compendium of Herbs, Spices, and Flavors, which was always published with one of his signature plant drawings. Eugene's late career book, Hints and Pinches, grew out of his knowledge and work tending his own urban vegetable garden.
6: He grew Rocket, which I take it is arugula now, Well, back in 1980s Mobile, nobody, at least we young people, we didn't know what rocket was and never heard of that.
0: Everyone I spoke with was a fan of Eugene's writing and his art, but it became clear that his real impact was the effect his character had on everyone he met.
5: He, He was a monologuist and a performance artist. And it would start as soon as you rang the doorbell and he came to the door, he would just start talking and basically performing. I mean, in a way it was like he was in some ways a comedian, just turning on as soon as he started interacting with another person. I just found myself just just listening in awe every time I was
0: around him. Eugene didn't have a driver's license, but he never lacked for people to take him places. Instead, he enlisted drivers. Catherine fondly remembers taking Eugene to Delchamp's grocery store.
5: You'd, you'd cruise the aisles with him, and then all of a sudden he would just go into some paroxysm of of delight over finding some kind of jam that he didn't know they had in Mobile. And he just had a way of making you feel better about being alive, being in the grocery store, which is usually a dreadful chore, and he would make it fun.
0: Ted Dial, a mobile-based custom home builder and a good friend of Eugene's, often took Eugene on longer road trips, and they were always an event.
7: We'd be going somewhere and say, now, what, what town or what is the exact spot that's exactly halfway between where we're going and, you know, between where we came from and where we're going, and... And, you, and you'd tell him and you'd say, okay, we're stopping there uh, when you get there. And, and uh, you know, you'd stop and he, he'd have a basket, bring out a bottle of port. <laughs> you have to get out and sit down and, and pause and, and have a moment of civilization, he would call it, because it's the celebration of the halfway point. You know, and all we'd be doing is just going from here to there, you know.
0: Eugene saw things others didn't see and told stories others lacked the insights to tell. His stories could seem fantastical and unbelievable. But the more fantastic the story seemed, his friends recalled, the greater chance it was true. And his stories were so well told, his enthusiasm was so contagious that his friends didn't even really care if the stories were true.
5: If somebody's a myth maker and a teller of tall tales, as Southerners often are, that's part of our oral tradition. That's where a lot of Southern fiction comes from. We spin tall tales
0: and they get taller in the retelling. One of the best times for storytelling was during a meal at Eugene's house. He loved to cook and host dinner parties. In Mobile, he always had cats, but he would entertain in the cat-free room, which was this stunning, highly curated museum of paintings and books and relics from his travels. He had a stuffed monkey under a bell jar and a life-size cardboard figure of Dolly Parton. He was a conductor of lively gatherings, often bringing together strangers and introducing them to new ingredients, like his favorite spice, mace. He could transform a Jerusalem artichoke or an onion with simple preparation and a thoughtful presentation. There was always bourbon and port.
7: Sometimes he didn't have money to buy much stuff, so he would use the imagination rather well, and he would always embellish with a uh, his ability to give names to and to invent a history of the food, the plate, the people, any anything, he, he he would make it more noble. A lot of times he would do the same dish over and over, and anticipating that you might get a whiff of boredom, he would just give a new number to it. You know, that he would he would say, "This is Beef Bourguignon, 160 Grand Boulevard, number." 247 and you know so if if you had the same meal again it would at least have another number a little lunch he had for one or two people that just spontaneous
6: was an event often if you look at it soberly from the distance I mean he would go into the kitchen and open a few cans and it might be some slice ham from a can with a little bit of beets and a few onions thrown on top and this and that. And then he would make up a French name. He says, oh, we're so lucky today. We're having a combinaison de betteraves. And he thought, oh my God. <laughs> and it certainly tasted better than if it said, we're having canned beets. <laughs>
5: And you felt suspended in time. You did not feel that time was marching on. You just, you felt that time had stopped somehow. And you were in a a different universe because you were in a universe that Eugene Walter had created.
2: When we come back, our reporter Sarah Brooke Curtis looks at Eugene's life in Mobile, Alabama, the city that turned him out but always beckoned him home.
0: But first... For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey... Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, every step in the bourbon making process is carefully crafted just like Bill Samuels Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Though he lived abroad for most of his adult life, Eugene was first and foremost a citizen of Mobile. Everywhere Eugene traveled, he stashed a good-luck shoebox of red clay dug from a gully near his birthplace. On his terrace in Rome, he tended a patch of okra. On a plot of land near the Colosseum, he planted a crop of collards. In Europe, Eugene's creative life flourished. He wrote for the Paris Review and edited Bottega Oscura. He published books of poetry— he won a prestigious Lippincott Award for his novel, The Untidy Pilgrim. He acted in and translated over 100 Italian films, working closely with Fellini on many of them. He hosted elaborate dinner parties, often mixing celebrities like T.S. Eliot, Judy Garland, William Faulkner, and Anais Nin, with struggling artists and intellectuals. He always seemed to be in the right place at the right time.
4: And he would say, I made pots of money translating film scripts in Italy, and I opened up the window and threw it all out he had big parties he he shared whatever he had
0: but eventually political unrest in rome compelled his exit i had gone to the mushroom shop up the block he told a friend and a policeman who raised his billy club to conk a demonstrator knocked out my front tooth and i thought i wonder what it's like in mobile it must be so peaceful so after 30 years away he returned home it was not the place that he remembered Here's an abridged recording of Eugene in 1989, nostalgic for Old Mobile, reading at an event called Archifest, organized by the Alabama Department of Archives and History.
8: I was 30 years in Paris and Rome, and when I came back, I found that something very precious to me had vanished. Poet's life had vanished. I want to read you a little. With air conditioning and television, centuries of poet's life have come to a sad fade out. It used to be that when the sun went down, little by little, all the inhabitants of a house would begin to sally forth, each to his particular chair, armed always with the same props, a glass of something, a flashlight, a cushion, a fan. The children gathered on the steps while digesting supper, not dinner, but supper then began interminable games of hide-and-seek, and one heard near and far that 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. I wonder how many young adults today would recognize the phrase 500 by fives, the counting which precedes that triumphant coming, ready or not.
0: Here's John Sledge again.
4: You know, he always gloried in, in the eccentricities of Mobile. He would talk about how it was this pocketed, exotic, Catholic city when he grew up, where French was still spoken. You could hear Spanish in the streets. And then it was invaded during World War II because of shipyard jobs by, as he referred to it, Barbarous Baptists from the North. And so Mobile became Protestantized, if that's a word, and Americanized, and in some respects far less interesting, or at least it outgrew its old provincial colonial origins. So he always remembered that that underlying spirit that had nourished his artistic soul.
0: Later in his life, Eugene was sometimes treated like a misfit in a changed mobile.
5: He was beloved in a way, but kind of as the the court fool. And I, I, th- I think that that was upsetting to him existentially. Not that he ever really articulated that to me, but You know, he would talk about how the Mobile he grew up in was a town where eccentricity was regarded as creativity. And the Mobile he came back to was a place where he felt eccentricity was shunned.
0: Still, in those years, Eugene was invited to perform readings all over the state. Ted remembers driving him to a library club in Huntsville, Alabama, where he was asked to read some of his work. Mm
7: we walked in there were all these big round tables and a big room and there were a lot of people in there. I mean, maybe 50, 60 people. It's not a small crowd. And they all looked so serious. They were just well dressed. I mean, he'd see, he sort of started off, you know, serious. But next thing you know, he says, I'm going to introduce my band. And he introduced these imaginary characters and some of them were animals. And one of them played the trumpet of the somebody played the clarinet and all that. And he was reading from his he's reading his from his book, The Pack Rat. He would read a verse and then he'd go off doodle, 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 and like a, some you know, like hit a clarinet in his mouth or something. And here in front of all these serious people, and you know, at first a couple of us were really just about ready to crawl under the table and disappear, you know. But we just it was unbelievable how those people were just laughing and holding their stomach, nearly falling out of their chairs, just all over the room before over. So that was one of the biggest, biggest events where I was the most proud of, of Eugene. Because <laughs> you know, it wasn't just us friends who, you know, who got it, these people were transformed.
0: Ted finishes this story with tears in his eyes. Everyone I interviewed in person had a moment like this. Eugene's impact was both ethereal and palpable. Here's Frank again.
6: And he could walk into a room of, it didn't matter who it was, and kind of dominate the room and fascinate everyone. And it could be wealthy people from the power structure of Mobile, or I'm convinced it could have been you know in, in London or Rome or wherever he was. It could be even with famous people. He could hold his own. He was going to be who he was, and he didn't modify his behavior. He did not change his language. He did not become less outrageous, and he would, if he felt like it, he would talk about cats and monkeys
4: to these
0: industrialists. Cats and monkeys?
4: Well, the cat and monkey was for him, he would say, that's the top 3%. Those are the people who can sort of follow any reference, can run with any joke, can laugh off the wall, I guess is, is, is would be another way of putting it people on whom nothing's lost and who weren't fuddy-duddy or uptight about things.
0: In Milking the Moon, Eugene says, Anyone who knows me knows I'm more monkey than man. Actually, I'm a rare cross between cat and monkey. Monkeys realize that many people die of boredom. More people die of boredom than die of diseases, since activity is the human norm. So many people get bogged down in marriage, business, church, property— So monkeys like to create mischief. That is to say, they eventually smash a few windows. People who stand upright in the usual way approach life in the usual way. But I'm more likely to be found upside down, swinging from the chandelier.
6: People sometimes say he was whimsical. Eugene told me he hated that word. He was not whimsical, and he wasn't. He was for real.
0: Mardi Gras. Which Mobile first celebrated in 1703, yes, that's before New Orleans, was in Eugene's day an extraordinary event. It still is. Catherine reminds me how much Eugene loved it.
5: The atmosphere of carnival, when the world is turned upside down, and that daily nine to five routine, which he so reviled, is thrown out the window for everybody. Not just Eugene, for once the whole town has kind of joined him in the way that he approaches daily life.
0: It's late afternoon and I'm at Haint Blue Brewing Company because I heard there was an IPA named after Eugene called Sweet Lunacy. The name is a reference to a line in Eugene's novel, The Untidy Pilgrim, where he writes, Down in Mobile, they're all crazy. Because the Gulf Coast is the kingdom of monkeys, the land of clowns, ghosts, and musicians. And Mobile is Sweet Lunacy's county seat. I find Keith Sherrill smiling behind the bar.
6: Yeah, my name is Keith Sherrill. I am the proprietor of Haint Blue Brewing Company, and that's where we're at. And what's today? Today is Fat Tuesday, if you can't hear. yeah.
0: It turns out Keith's brewery is next door to the oldest graveyard in the city. Church Street Graveyard where Eugene was buried in 1998. The graveyard had been closed for a century, but when Eugene died, local historians and friends worked to get it reopened so he could be buried in what's referred to as the Poet's Corner. He's buried right next to legend Joe Kane, who's considered the founder of Mobile's Mardi Gras. Keith is from central Alabama, and when he moved to Mobile in 2016 with dreams of opening a brewery, he wanted to figure out what was truly Mobile,
6: so at some point in, a, you know, in an effort to get closer to this place and, and figure out what made this area special, I kind of walked through that graveyard on more than one occasion. Discovered Eugene Walter, did a little bit of research, found out the guy is uh, Mobile's Renaissance man. I mean, a dude that, that traveled the world and chose to write about home.
0: Keith also met a local who told him about Eugene and recommended that he read The Untidy Pilgrim. He then realized that in order to really understand this place, he had to understand Eugene. Like me, Keith came late to Eugene's story. But in his discovery and in his homage, Eugene's legacy persists.
6: Uh, if he were alive today, I feel like this would be the kind of place that he would come into. And this is a certain kind of weird in here uh, that wouldn't make sense anywhere else. So I guess that was it. All of
1: it's a tribute.
0: Blowhouse Brass Band comes in and takes over the place. One of the horn players stands on top of a table with a long purple and gold cape He's swaying back and forth and the crowd goes wild. Conversations stop, people stand up and dance. I'm moved to tears. It might be the music or the story about the beer or the beer itself, or it might just be the spirit of Eugene Walter.
1: Gravy was reported and produced by Sarah Brooke Curtis. She'll choose stinky cheese over sweet chocolate every time. Smart woman. Sarah's work has aired on the Splendid Table, KCRW's Good Food, CBC's Love Me, Nashville Public Radio's Neighbors, and more.
2: She's a busy woman.
1: Special thanks today go to who, John T?
2: We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all of the rest of Hay Media—that's Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster, who ensconced in this little tent we call a studio, has gotten really good at hand signals, and she serves as our publisher.
1: Visit SouthernFoodways.org to listen to Trovatore: The Lives of Eugene Walter, performed by Paul Birch and the WPA Ball Club. How I Found Paris is my favorite song from Trovatore. What's yours, John T.? I dig boogie back. It's got this great energy and drive. Speaking of dancing, I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm
2: John T. Edge.
1: Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.
2: Mm. (laughs) Mmm.